I hope you're having a great morning. Just be honest with you, I'm having a, like a really, really good morning. And I, I, don't, I don't know why. I may, maybe I do. I was driving in um, this morning like I do every Sunday. And uh, I, I spend some time while I'm driving just to pray. And honestly, something, a reminder that God gave me this morning as I was driving in was I was thinking about all the things we have to do. And it was like God kind of hit me in that moment. It was like, hey, you know, you don't have to do any of this. You, you get to do this. And I just thought that was a really good reminder for me that I get to be here and worship with you. And I have the coolest job ever. Like, I get paid to do what we should be doing anyway. Anyway, that's not a part of that. Um, but I do want to jump in because we got a lot to do today. And we're, we're in a third week of this series called Saturated, where, where we're looking at what does it actually look like to be saturated in the love of God? Um, in the first two weeks, we've talked about this idea of generosity and, and where generosity comes from and the framework for that. And today, we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to take a little bit of a different angle. And I want to tell you why we're generous people or why we should be generous people. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, like we say every week, they're in the ends of the rows. That's our gift to you. Um, at City Church, we open up the Bible every week. So uh, we'd love for you to just take that Bible with you if you don't own one. So Genesis chapter 12, and as you're doing that, let me recap really quickly the last two weeks. So the last two weeks, we, we built this framework, like I said, for generosity. And, and, and here's the, if you will, the one line, the big idea that I wanted to get across in the last two weeks is this. Listen, God does not, and he's not, he, he will not be after our money. Uh, honestly, that, that's the thing. Listen, God wants our hearts. And I've said this a lot. Listen, God's not trying to take money out of your pockets. He's trying to take idols out of your heart. Why is that? Because oftentimes, according to Matthew 6, and we talked about this two weeks ago, oftentimes there's a thing that comes in between us and God, and it tends to be the thing that we lean into the most for our satisfaction. So we talked about this idea that God literally has everything. You, you get this, right? Uh, the Bible says God has a cattle on a thousand hills. The Bible says that God spoke and the world came into being. Every single thing in this world he owns. So I think the greatest myth of all is that if we drop a few extra dollars in the offering bucket or we feel guilty about it, that we feel like we please God or God needs us. And the reality is that's not at all true. God can do anything he wants, whenever he wants. What he wants is our hearts. So last week we walked through Paul in 2 Corinthians gave us these four motivations behind why we give at all. Why are we generous people? The first motivation was it's the example of other believers. Basically what we said is that we're not the only people walking this race alone. Like People are running beside us. Second one was the example of Christ, the gospel, what Jesus did. Jesus literally gave himself so that we could have him. All right, now the next one was the, the, it was the example of your own life through giving. Again, if any of you have ever done anything sacrificial, you see the reward that comes through that. And then the fourth one that Paul said is the example of how God multiplies our capacity to give as we give. Um, that's just basically changing your heart through giving, all right? Makes sense? Now here's where we're going today. We're going to go and look at the third, what I think is the why behind the what, all right? As, as we're doing that, let, let me just ask you a question. Show of hands, who uses a GPS to drive through these crazy roads in Atlanta? Anybody? Right? None of them make sense. I, we've lived in major cities all over the country, and they're gridded, and they make total sense. These just look like this, and you go anywhere. Now, all right, who in this room isn't like an Apple Maps kind of person? Okay, if you're over 50, that's probably you. How about Google Maps? Now, for everybody under 25 that's hipster, how about Waze? Right? You see how that comes out? All right. I, by the way, am an Apple Maps kind of person. And the best thing I like about Apple Maps is the fact that the little voice inside of my map, Siri, uh, she's never mad at me. 
She never argues with me. If I'm honest with you, if I miss a turn, she gently recalculates and moves alongside where I'm going. Like you, to understand why this is so important to me, you have to understand the world that I come from. I am dominated by women in my life. Okay, I have a female dog, I have a wife, and I have two daughters. And if it wasn't for Elliot, my last child coming along, I would have been totally dominated. But here's the thing. Everywhere I go, I'm outnumbered by women, and they all have opinions besides Siri. Siri just does exactly what I want. She's the voice of my phone that never, ever gives me a hard time. I love her. You see, most of us, honestly, a lot of that's a joke there, but most of us, honestly, that's how we view God. We view God as the Siri in our life that never argues with us, tells us exactly what we want, and whenever the destination that God has for our life changes, we just want him to recalculate and do exactly what I want him to do whenever I want him to do it. The only problem with that is that's not how God operates. Actually, what's an even bigger problem with that is is that when you operate and function that way with God, you technically become the functional God of your own life, and that's exhausting. It really is. It creates in you burnout and discontentment because your destination for your life always seems off and you just want God to change it. What I want to show you today is a pattern that you're going to see throughout the entire Bible. You're going to see this in the beginning in Genesis. You're going to see it when Jesus talks, and you're going to see it at the end of the Bible. And the pattern is how to have joy in life actually comes with how you um, talk to and work with God. All right, if you want to follow Jesus and if you want to experience abundant joy, listen, it's not found when God's your GPS, it's found when you give God your total surrender. That's the difference. The key to joy in the Christian life is total surrender. And what I want you to see today is that's the key to real and lasting faith as well. It's not when God is your GPS and he does exactly what you want him to do. You don't come to God on your terms, you come to God on his terms. And when you do that, you see absolutely amazing things happen. Your faith changes and your heart changes when you come and surrender and it creates the generosity that we've been talking about. I want to show you this. You ready? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. All right, we normally don't do this. We normally go through books of the Bible. Well, we're doing something a little different today. So what I want you to do is I want you to see we're jumping into the middle of a story. So this story has some context. Let me give you a little bit of the framework or the context behind what's happening in Genesis chapter 12.1. There's this guy named Abram. Abram has his name changed, which you'll see in a few chapters, to Abraham. Most of you, if you've been around the Christian life at all, have understood or you know um, who this character named Abraham is. What many of you don't know is the ironic play on words that's happening here in this story. Listen, in Hebrew culture, your name meant something. It was more than just a name. It was actually your identity, much less today than it was then. Today, I have, again, three kids. The way we named our kids was based on the affinity or the names that we thought were cool. That's not how it worked in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of this. There's a guy named Jacob. If you read beyond Abraham's story to one of, Jacob's, or to one of Abraham's sons, there's a guy named Jacob. Jacob's name in Hebrew literally means heel grabber or the great deceiver if you were to transliterate it into English. And here's what's happening. If you've ever read the story, you have two twins, a guy named Jacob and a guy named Esau. Esau's the firstborn son, but the way the story goes, it says as Esau is being born, Jacob is grabbing his heel to try to pull him back into the womb, hence heel grabber. 
So for the rest of Jacob's life, his identity is characterized by deception. He's deceived by his mom. He's deceived by his dad. He has an uncle named Laban who deceives him, all the way up until the point where Jacob actually doesn't even want to live anymore, and he comes face to face with God, and he wrestles with God, the text says. And at the end of wrestling with God, God looks at Jacob and says, Jacob, what is your name? Now, if you're reading the Bible correctly, you're like, you're God. You know his name. That's not the point. The point was, at this point, Jacob had to come face to face with his identity. And God says, your name is not Jacob any longer. You're not the deceiver. Your name is Israel the promise. You see, what you see there is just like Abram, when he has his name changed, identity is attached to your name. So here's the irony, though, in Genesis chapter 12. The word Abram in Hebrew means father. The only problem is, is Abram's not a father, and he's 75 years old. That's a big problem because his identity is attached to a reality that's not actually coming true. And I don't know about you, but if you have a kid when you're 75, that's kind of odd and doesn't happen very often. But there's also a second play on words here that's going to become very important, and it shows up in verse 2. So if you look at verse 2, God's promise to Abraham is, I will bless you and make your name great. Check this out. Abraham's story actually begins in Genesis 11. Right before this, you have one of the most famous scenes in the Bible. It's called the Tower of Babel. Okay, again, if you've been around the Christian life at all, you've probably heard the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody spoke one language, God disperses them, and all the languages change. Now, again, there's a detail in the Tower of Babel that tells you something very significant here. Here's the detail. It says the reason that the people in the Tower of Babel had to be spread out is because they were trying to make a name for themselves. So you see an ironic play on words from Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 12, God says, I will make a name for you. In Genesis chapter 11, the evilness of the world says, I will make a name for myself. Okay? That's where you get. So at the end of Genesis chapter 11, watch this. There's another ironic thing that you see here is you see that Terah, who is Abram's father, has one kid, Abram. But Terah, actually in Hebrew, the word means moon. Now, again, for you that's not kind of educated on Hebrew literature, listen, the, the city that they live in was Ur of the Chaldeans, and the idol that they worshipped was the moon god. So what you see is the evilness of the world that Genesis chapter 11 had created has already even started penetrating the very last godly family on the planet, and Abraham's dad is actually probably no longer worshipping God, but he's worshipping and he's given into the culture of the moon god. So now, you come to Genesis chapter 11, 1, this is really important, and God comes to to Abraham, and he says, go, and I will bless you, but everything in Abraham's life seems to be evil at this point. The world is evil, everything has gone wrong, he doesn't have any children, he has no legacy, it seems like nothing is going right at all, and nothing can ever change for him, because he doesn't have anything that the world says he should have. So now you have this ironic play on words, okay, where God looks at the nations and he says, I'm dispersing you because you're trying to make a name for yourself. And by the way, that will not work. And then he looks at Abram and he says, if you want a name, I will make your name. See, this is really, really important. Listen, the blessings of God do not come when you try to make your own name. The blessings of God come when you submit and totally surrender to the name that he gives you. All right, one more significant detail that you're going to need whenever we go through this. Listen, Abraham, uh, or, uh, Genesis eleven thirty says this, the Mo- Moses, the writer of Genesis, he says this, now Sarai, who was Abram's wife, was barren, and she had no children. 
That's actually really significant. Not only did they have no kids, they could not have kids, it says. Really big deal because for Abram and Sarai to have no kids meant that they had no legacy. Okay, the other thing you need to know is that in this period of time, when you wanted to pass on a legacy, it did not happen through any means except through your son. So for Abraham to not have any children, especially a boy, meant that he had no property or possessions to pass on, right? For Abram to not have kids meant he had nothing. He had no future for his family. His Hebrew 401k did not exist. Think about that. Honestly, if you look at Genesis chapter 12, the way it opens up, it's almost like somebody's playing a cruel joke on Abraham. So here's the scene. The world is dark. The only family left on earth is the godly family line that seems to have been given up their worship to idols, and the only person that can do anything about it is the one person who has no children to pass on to the next generation. But check out what God says to Abraham in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." Now, if you're a Christian at all, you have the benefit of perspective, right? You're looking back on this. You have history. You know what happens. But think about it from Abraham's point of view. Put yourself in the story. Abram is 75 years old. Imagine waiting your entire life for God to answer your prayer, and right at the point where you've come face-to-face with the reality, you've retired yourself to believing, okay, it's not going to happen for me. It's not in the cards. Imagine that you get there, and then God shows up, and he speaks, And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless your name and the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, implied in that promise is this idea of a covenantal family. You you have to understand that for Abraham to sit here and listen to God, implied in the promise that God has given him is the idea that he will have children. And with that, you have to understand the emotional pull that would have happened in that moment for Abraham. Think about it. God, where have you been my entire life? I've been praying this prayer literally since I was 20 years old, and I'm 75, and you're going to show up now. Abram was in a dark place. He was old. He didn't have children. His wife couldn't even have kids. And based on the context of Genesis 1 through 11, things in the world were really dark. Evil around him was blossoming, and his life seemed hopeless. So listen, Abraham had to choose to follow God even in the midst of his darkness. That's the scene. Okay, it's not just that in Genesis 1 where God says, Abram, go, go. No, it's in the midst of darkness. What I want to show you today is that many of your lives are in the same exact place as Abram's. See, I believe that God wants to do something really significant in your life. I actually believe that you want God to do something really significant in your life. I think that the issue is, and where rubber meets the road, is that most of us are waiting for God to bless us to move. But the reality is, when you look at Abram's life, that's simply not how it works. Honestly, that's not how it works anywhere in the Bible. For many of you today, you're on the brink of giving up on God. You're on the brink of, just like Abraham, of retiring yourself to the proposition that nothing's going to change. It hasn't changed yet. My marriage is still failing. God, you have never intervened. I can't have children. God, it's not going to change. Or whatever, fill in the blank for where you're at in your life. I'm never going to get the job. I'm never going to do this. And God, like Abram, says, just follow me. Everything in your life says give up, but the point of the Bible says don't. See, also, like Abraham, he had, you have to make a choice. I'll be honest with you. Are you going to wait until things seem easy to trust God? Are you willing to follow God in the midst of darkness? That's my question. 
Today, listen, do you believe that God is bigger than your circumstances and the things that's happened in your life, and are you willing to trust him based off of what you know about him? Or do you have to have a big picture of what everything looks like before you do anything? Listen, before you can be generous towards God, and this is why I wanted to go here, you have to answer the question, do you trust God? Do you trust him? Like I've said every week, God's not after your stuff. He's after your hearts. And and that's why I believe that God puts people like Abraham and you in situations that he does. Because it reveals your heart. It reveals the motive behind what you really want. Do you really want God or do you really want the possessions that you think he's going to provide for you? Because at the end of the day, that's the trust factor. Do you trust God? Do you trust he's good enough to lead you where he wants you to go? Check out how Abraham responded to God in verse 4. It says, so Abram went. Abram went. Like, that's an underline that if you underline things. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram went. That was his response. His response was faith. Listen, Abram going was tied to him believing that God was going to fulfill every promise that he made to him. He didn't know. He didn't know where he was going or what he was doing. He just went. See, Abram's call, listen, it's a pattern for all of us. And I think it presents us with three questions that we need to ask ourselves today. As we walk out of this room, here's question number one. Am I really following God? That's question number one. Am I really following God? Go back to verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Did you notice what God told Abram to do? Told him to go. Go where? I don't know. Just go. Listen, the first thing that I want you to see is that this is really hard. All right, I'm not, I'm not naive to this. Blind faith, like Abram was supposed to have, is really hard. But isn't it true that that's what most of our lives look like anyway? Think about it. Your everyday life, it's the illusion of control. I think about the best example I could give is I travel on planes a lot. And look, I know my destination. I know when I get on the plane, I'm going to New York City. But I have absolutely no control whenever I get on that plane. It's simply a faith proposition. Reasonable, yes. Still faith, yes. Most of your life's that way. You get in the car. You don't know what's going to happen next. Most of our life tends to live by faith. Also, did you notice the call to following God? It's a call to abandoning everything else. It wasn't just a call to faith, but it was a call to God and only God. You see, God didn't just call Abraham to move. He called him to leave everything behind, right? He had to leave behind his security of his father and his kindred. He had no kids, so he was still connected to his father's blessing. He had to leave behind um, all the things that he was familiar with in the land that he would have been given the rights to. God says, go. None of those things, by the way, that God was telling him to leave behind are bad. I just want you to know that. Your family's good. Your possessions are good. I've told you this before. The reality is, is that idols tend to be good things, not bad things. Tim Keller says it this way. Idols are good things that we elevate to God things, and then they become ultimate things. That's the reality. We take good things, and we elevate them to a place that they shouldn't be. So God says, Abram, go. Abram says, where? God says, just go, and I'll show you. God says, Abram, go, and I'll give you a son. Abram says, but how? And God says, just go, and I'll show you. Just trust me. Just follow me. This command that God gave Abram was really a test, and it was a test of who's in control of your life, Abram. See, the moment that Abram had to answer the question, it really was, when God says go, it was, do I trust God or do I really trust myself? Isn't that that what taking 
and giving yourselves completely to God looks like anyway? It's a complete surrender that says, God, I don't know where I'm going and I don't know the future anyway, but I'm willing to walk with you in the unknown destination anyway because I trust the God who sent me there. This is how the Bible describes faith. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see that, according to the writer of Hebrews, there's really two things in faith. The first thing is this, it's assurance. It's assurance of things hoped for, but it's also the conviction of things not seen. And both of those take trust in something outside of yourself. Assurance means that you're absolutely a positive of where you're going, and conviction means that you believe, you believe that that's the way that you should live, and it affects the way that you live. So faith in God is the assurance of he's going to absolutely deliver, and my conviction is it's going to alter the way that I live because I believe that he's going to deliver. You get that? So let me ask you the question. The same question that God ultimately asked Abram. Are you really following God? Are you really following God? Honestly, when you look at your life, does your life reflect a life that says, God, I trust you and I believe you and I'm living for you? Are you really living and following God? Let me ask it this way. If you were, if you were to, your life was to represent a check, just say it this way, what would be on that check? What would be on it? Would it be a dollar amount that you feel like, God, you can have 90% of me or 80%? See, because here's what the Bible says is a, a real true faith is a blank check. It's simply your signature and you say, God, you take it. Now, for again, for all of us millennials in the room, you're like, what the heck's a check? It's like giving God the password to your Venmo account, <laughs> right? And you're like, God, you got it. All $26.42 that I got in my bank account is yours. That's what it looks like. That's what faith looks like. It's not God, you can have a portion of me. It's God, you actually own the account and you tell me where to go. The same call that God gave Abram is the same call that God's giving us today. Just follow me. No conditions, just go. I love the way John Calvin, old theologian, a long time ago, said it like this. So they say how he summarizes it. Calvin says, if God was saying this, he would be like, I command you to go forth with closed eyes and forbid you to inquire where I'm about to lead you until, having renounced your country, you have given yourselves wholly to me. Here's what Calvin's saying. Just close your eyes and follow me. Don't worry about any of it. Just follow me because you believe that I'm better than those things. Right? I love that. What if God is calling many of you in this room to do the same thing today? What if the reason why you're not experiencing vibrant faith and joy in your life is because your check still has a mount on it? God, you can have this, but you can't have that. What if God's just saying, look, do you really trust me? Do you really trust that I'm leading where I want you to go? Right? Is it possible that you're sitting here today for the purpose of this call? I love this. I love this because you see it all throughout the Bible. Look at the most, most famous psalm that most of us know, Psalm 23, 4. Right? Listen to what he says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. See, I think the myth that we've been sold is this, is that you won't walk through the valley. That life's going to be easy if you walk the Christian life. Again, how to not grow a church one-on-one, let me tell you that's a lie. You are going to walk through the valley. The promise is not you're not going to walk through the valley and life's not going to be hard. The promise is that God will be with you as you do it. And that's the joy. You see, because what you've been told and what I've been told is the gift of God is that if you live a certain way, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and everything will, be go, will go well. But that's not what the gift of God is according to the Bible. The gift of God that you get is God. You get God. In the midst of all the things, you have the joy of knowing that the eternal God who created all this is with you in the valley. When God calls you, are you willing to give him the one thing that's keeping you from experiencing God? 
That's the question. Notice this. In verse 1, that go there is an unconditional call. You see it? You hear what I'm saying? It wasn't a suggestion to Abram. It was a command. Go and follow me. Go and follow me. And look, Jesus, again, Jesus repeats the same exact command. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Guys, the Christian life is a call to unconditional surrender. It wasn't just a call for Abram, it's a call for you, and it's a call throughout the entire Bible. The gospel is a call to rest all of your hope on the word of Christ and believe that he is good and you need nothing else but Christ alone because he is good. I've heard it said it like this. In every life, there's a throne and a cross. Either you're on the throne and Jesus is on the cross or Jesus is on the throne and you're on the cross, but you cannot have it both ways. According to the Bible, you have to decide who's on the throne. Because one of those has life-saving, eternal implications, and the other one always overpromises and underdelivers. Listen, I want all of you to experience the life that God has for you, but it takes faith. It takes us being willing to call upon ourselves and say, God, I will follow you. We've said this every week. According to Matthew chapter 6, all of us will have to ask ourselves, who do we want to be a slave to? Do we want to be a slave to Christ? who delivers and he's a good father, or do we want to be a slave to our stuff that never delivers, always overpromises, and always makes us want more? Listen, I don't think God's calling you to unconditional surrender because he's some kind of God that's angry. I think he calls you to that because he knows and he wants you to know that it's here in the unconditional call of surrender to Jesus that you actually experience the joy and the blessing of God because there's something competing for your souls. There really is. And you know this. You know this empirically whenever you just look at your life. Is it, the, is it the, the rat race of trying to make it to the next level in your job and then you get that job and you find out that it's not, it actually doesn't satisfy you the way that you want? Or is it looking to your spouse to be your functional God and then they never live up to that and then you're always angry at one another? Is it your children that you live vicariously through and that's why you do sports 14,000 times a week and then you find out that it just doesn't work out because it never, ever satisfies, even if they make it to the highest level possible, there's always something else that you need. Or can you just surrender to Jesus and enjoy those things because those are all good things? That's the question. When you look at your life, who do you serve? Or here it is. If you want to experience the blessings of God, you have to follow God's command to go. Go where? I don't know. Just go. Just trust. That's number one. Number two is this. Where's my, where's my security? Where's my security? See, when God commanded Abraham to leave his country and to leave his family, he's not simply telling him to go to another place. He's telling him to leave behind every bit of his security. If Abram would have stayed with his family, he would have gotten the inheritance of the family. When God calls Abram to go, he wasn't simply telling Abram to add him to his life. He was telling him that he wants every bit of his life. God's call to Abram was an entire entirely new life. In those days, I've told you this already, the family tie was the most important thing you had. Your family name meant everything. It would have been equivalent, listen, to God looking at you and saying, I need you to quit your job, move to a new place, start a new job where you have no friends and no family. 
Honestly, as I was writing this, the one thing I thought about was the people who moved here from North Carolina to join us. I thought about Derek and Emily, and I thought about Jean, and I thought about Susie, and all these people. Whenever they, whenever I had a conversation, and many of you, to move here to join us, to plant this church a year and a half ago, that was not simply a call to plant a church. It was a call to follow God, and they did that. They moved to a place, to a city where they knew nobody and had no family, and we didn't even have a church. It was theoretical at that point. And they bought houses and started jobs here. And, and like, I praise God for that because what they did is they did exactly what God is calling you to do. Now, again, that doesn't mean move. Hear me whenever I say that. It simply just means willing to do anything that God asks you to do. So here's my question. Are you willing to put it all on the table and say, God, I trust you? Are you willing to do that? Here's the easiest way to know. Let me just give you a litmus test. Here's the easiest way to know if you are or you're not. All right? What's the one thing that you're not willing to put on the table? Think about that. Can I tell you that's probably the thing that you're putting your security in? That's probably the thing that you trust. Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your house? Your kids? What is it? Number three. Do I believe God is enough? Do I believe God is enough? Go back to verse two. Listen to what God says. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What I want you to notice is that following God always have blessings attached to it. Look, I know that, that gets abused. I get that. But it's true. God really does want to bless you. But look very closely at the verses. He says, and I want to show you this again from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that we looked at last week. He doesn't just say he wants to bless you. He wants to bless you so that you will be a blessing. Remember this last week in 2 Corinthians 9? He who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply your seed for sowing to increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's it. See, God's call to Abraham, although it was an unconditional call of surrender, it was also a call to extreme blessing. Now, some of you are sitting here, maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, I get that, I hear you, but I don't feel blessed. I don't feel blessed. I might, might I say that you don't feel blessed because you don't know what the blessing is? Maybe. Listen, the blessing of God, I, I really, if you write things down, write this down. The blessing of God is not an abundance of wealth. It's not an abundance of possessions. The blessing of God is the gift of faith. That's what the blessing of God is. You ever notice that? At the end of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's it. The blessing of God is God. When you have the blessing of God, you have God. So here's the question. Do you believe that God is enough? Do you believe that God is enough for your eternal joy? Do you believe that God is enough to care for your family and provide for your needs? Do you believe God is enough to lead you? Do you believe God is enough to give your trustworthy surrender to him? If you want to be saturated in the joy of this life, that's where it rests. That's why God gives Abraham an option. You notice this. It's an unconditional call, but there is an option. There's actually two options. Option one is this. Hold on to what you have and don't go. Abraham could have said no. He could have stayed. He could have. I mean, anytime you, you can do whatever you want. Abraham could have stayed. He could have stayed with his family in the comforts of his life, but here's what he would not have had. He would not have had the blessing of God. Right? Abram had a blessing that God was giving to him, which would be a family that would impact the entire world if he just simply go. So that was option one. Hold on to what you have. Option two was give it all up and follow me. 
This option was to leverage his life and he trusts God. Hard? Yes, of course it's hard. But worth it? Absolutely. You see, that's the call that God gives every single one of us. Do you believe God and are you willing to leverage your life for God in the midst of the hard times so because you believe that God has a blessing for you in himself? City Church, that's what the saturated life of God looks like. Have you, listen, have you experienced God in such a way that says, God, I trust you. God, I look back at what you've done. I see what you did on the cross. I see that you put on flesh and that you lived in my place and you died in my place. And I give my life to you because you're much better at this than I ever would be. And I don't know where we're going, but what I do know is that I know the God who's taking me there. And I trust him with that. Now watch this. Watch this. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you know who that includes? You. When, when God spoke to Abram, and he tells him about this blessing that would come forth from him, he's talking about you. In a few chapters, God's going to tell Abram, he's going to change his name to Abraham, and he's going to tell him to look up at the stars of the sky. And he's going to say, count them. He says, that's going to be your descendants. Check this out. Those same stars thousands of years ago that Abram was looking up at represented you. That blessing that God was giving him represented you and I. Thousands of years later, there would be a man that would come. And that man would change everything. You get that, right? That man's name was Jesus. See, real generosity is birthed out of the understanding and believing that God is who he says that he is and the same promise that God gave to Abraham is the same promise he's given to you. That you will be blessed and that he will rewrite the family that you belong to and he will change your family and give you a new name, a name that has eternal implications and a name that changes everything. Here it is, church. The blessing that Abraham received was the blessing that you and I received by faith. It's a blessing that allows us to have joy. It's the blessing that God says, I will bless you. And through that man who would come forth from Abraham, all the blessings of the world will come forth in, and that changes everything. The difference between you and I and Abraham is, though, Abraham looked forward to a promise. He looked forward and lived by faith. Listen, the perspective is, is we get to look back. The blessing wasn't something, it was someone. So Abraham, Abraham would have a son that God would promise, and that son's name would be Isaac. And then Isaac would have a son named Jacob. And Jacob would have a son named Joseph. And Joseph would have a son, and then their son, and son, and son. And thousands of years later, there would be another son that would come from the line of Abraham. He would be the promised one. He would be tied back to Genesis chapter 12 that God promised Abraham would be a son named Jesus. That would be brought forth in this world. And that son named Jesus would recreate the godly line of Abraham by adopting all those who have faith, total surrender into his family. His name is Jesus. He's the promise, and he's the entire point. City Church's saturated life is one that finds its joy in Jesus because we believe the promise is fulfilled in him and that every blessing that you could ever get is found in Jesus. That's why, if I don't know if you know this, but we're in this season uh, in the church calendar called Advent. Advent simply means that we're looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise. See, what we're looking forward to is the fulfillment of the promise that was started in Abraham. It's a reminder daily that when Abraham waited for a promise, we look back on it and it all comes together at the cross. 
that God sent forth his son thousands of years. God sent forth his son 2,000 years ago to make good on a promise that he gave to Abraham. And that promise was, I will bless you and I will bless your family and your family will be a blessing and all those blessings will be found in me. Get that. This is why it's so important. Honestly, guys, this is why generosity flows from Christ and not to him. This is why the gospel is so different. Why every other religion in the world says, try harder, do better, and maybe God will accept you. But the gospel says total contrary. The gospel says in the beginning, God created you in his image and he spoke life into you. And that as you ran away from him, as you ran away from him for thousands of years, God continued to pursue you. He pursued, he pursued to the point in which he stopped pursuing and he put on flesh and did what you never could do in your place. This book from Genesis to Revelation is the greatest, most powerful book in the world. One, because it's true. Two, because it tells the story about how you and I can be right with God. And the way that we can be right with God is not through our good works, but it's through the generosity of a God who would put on flesh and live the life we can never live, die the death that we deserve to die, and reconcile us to himself because he made good on a promise that he made thousands of years before. Listen, City Church, do you want to be generous people? It's not by giving. It's by trusting that God's going to make good on his promise to you too. That God is good. He's faithful. He's kind. And he's not waiting for you to do something in response to that. He gave, according to the Romans 5.8, he gave while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That means it's an unconditional surrender by God for you. And he calls you to an unconditional surrender by faith back to him. And in that, in that unconditional surrender, here's what happens. We go from this to freedom. That's the point. So I want to say it one more time. In this season of generosity that we're in, God's not after our possessions. He's not after your time, your talents, and your treasures. God has all that if he wants it. He's after your heart. And oftentimes, the thing that stands between us and God is our conditional surrender. It's the thing. And the city church, that's what we're after. Because I want you to experience the same joy that the rest of us in this room that have given that unconditional surrender experience. For years, for years, my life, I try to live by faith. Faith that says, God, I don't know where we're going or what you're doing, but we want to follow you. And all we've found is that it's hard and it's good. And I wouldn't change a thing about it. And that's what I want for you. Genesis 12, go to the land that I'm telling you to go. Leave it all behind, and I'll show you where you're going. And if you'll follow me, I'll make you a great blessing. And that great blessing is I will make you a child of God. That for all of eternity, you get to experience the family of God. And that's joy. Everlasting, saturated joy is found in the gospel.